Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. Historically, enemas have been a, a, a common practice, especially in a lot of alternative medicine circles, indigenous tribes, and people from all around the world have used their butthole as a way to either deliver medications or do something like an enema. It, it's one of those things where it seems like in America, especially, we're very wary about anything that goes near the butthole. In reality, doing an enema is, once you get used to it, it's kind of like brushing your teeth. If you're doing something like a coffee enema, make yourself your your coffee, let it cool down. Of course, that's important. And <laughs> like room temperature or lukewarm. And then, like I mentioned, I'll actually put things in there to help to either soothe the colon or feed the colonic flora. Typically, I'll put some extra virgin olive oil in there for the oleic acids, and I'll put some butyric acid, like a couple of butyric acid capsules in there because your colon loves butyric acid. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick and I'm pretty intense. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today on the show, I'm welcoming back Ben Greenfield. Uh, he is an expert in the field of health and wellness. He's got an amazing book called Boundless. He's got another cookbook, a boundless cookbook. He's brilliant. He's run every test. He's tried every biohack, every modality, everything, everything himself. But in the episode today, we dive into my labs. Yes, there's definitely a lot of information about me, but I think there's so much takeaway that can be had for other people. It's kind of like vitamins, all this extra stuff, like you know, just give it a try. It might make you feel better. So um, enjoy the episode today. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more of this kind of content, just click on the subscribe button. So I'm super excited to uh, have your expertise reviewing my labs, Ben. I feel like this has been like the year of health for me. Some people, the year of health is the year of health. So this has been a year of many, many, many medical tests and health journeys and learning more about my body. And so, um, so it started off with going to my just regular OBGYN, which was all I knew and all I had. Um, and I'm thinking if my cycle's late and then I skip some, it seems like that's who I go see. So I went and saw him and then we started, you know, we started off with what I thought was a lot of vials of blood of like nine vials of blood. And it was like, oh, your thyroid's oil. And I'm like, come on. I, I mean, know. It's like, I thought that was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's this one test that I do um, with Wellness FX. It's, it's called their longevity panel. 
And like, it's, it's everything under the sun that you could test for blood. But every time I go into, cause usually, usually you'll, you'll look up the local address of your, your quest or your lab core. You, yeah, you make yeah. an appointment, you drive in, you bring the, they call it a rec form, right? Your requisition form that is emailed to you that you print off and bring with you to the lab. And inevitably when I show up with that rec form for the longevity panel, their eyes cross and steam starts coming up. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Their ears because they got to print like two different workups because there's not enough on their computer apparently to cover all 27 tubes and you you know it, it takes a little bit of time for me to to get in and out of the lab and I'm, I'm to the point now where I just go to the same place and they kind of know when I show up what to expect. So they're a little bit quicker, but yeah, some, some of these more complex blood tests that a doctor normally wouldn't order sometimes throw the, throw the labs for a little bit of a loop. <laughs> it's so true. When I went and got in the end, when I went and got my big Cyrex panel, it was like 19 vials that day. And, mm -hmm. um, I was like, what's taking so long. And they're like, you have a lot of different ordered tests here and we're just making stickers like it's yeah. all the stickers to put on the tubes. so yeah it's it's nine was not much look at all the tubes to make sure that your name's actually on them <laughs> i know <laughs> quite the process but i guess it, it gives you the peace of mind that your results aren't going to be mixed up with you know your 90 year old neighbor down the street so <laughs> yeah so nine vials and you know it showed thyroid was low. So of course, I think here's the magic pill. Um, some of the other things that had been symptoms were like, I definitely noticed like dry skin, dry scalp, like less, little bit of thinning hair, a um, little bit of weight gain, all the, all those kinds of things. And I thought, man, this is it. Oh my God. If I only knew there was going to be so many more blood draws after that. <clears throat> and so you have to wait a month to get your next thyroid results because it takes that long to kind of you know, let the body adapt. And so in the process of that, um, I get turned on to your book boundless and I'm flipping through it. And I'm like, man, I would, I would just re really love to talk to you. And so we set up that interview and I said, what would I want it? What would I need to do if I wanted to know like all about food, what to eat, when to eat it, how to work out when to like, what, if I could like dial myself in, what would I need to do? And you gave me a list of tests that were everything from the longevity test of 19 vials to the NutraVal, which I think was the toxins, like nutrients and toxins test, um, the Dutch test for hormones, the strategene for um, pathways. I think that's kind of what it tests, right? Like there's different gene tests, yeah, but that yeah, one's a little bit. Genetic pathway, some, some, some so-called dirty genes that tend 
tend to be the actual problematic ones that you want to pay attention to versus like the the big laundry list of genetic data you might get from you know like like a whole genome analysis but you know 90% of that is just like it's it's down in the weed stuff that you don't need to pay that much attention to I, I, so i like that that dirty genes test that's uh, dr ben lynch's test called stratagene cuz you just get like the super actionable information you know like the nine or 10 dirty genes that you actually need to pay attention to so so yeah nine it was, 10 it was a 130 page test well it's it's <laughs> so it you can take as deep a dive as you want to into the results but really like the first four or five pages of the report that you get from Stratagene is what you actually want. I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm like a, like basically a glorified personal trainer with a nutrition certification who just biohacks and reads a lot and goes through a, a ton of this stuff, but please don't take anything I'm saying as medical advice. I just love to chat about this stuff and tell people, you know, what, 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 what I'm seeing and, and what I think are, are good things to do in a situation like that. But, but no, nothing I ever do is prescriptive. Like always, always talk to your doctor. Like I am, I am not a doctor. Do not consider anything Danica and I are talking about to be medical advice. The most humbling test ever, 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 ever. And I've done it twice now is the stool test. I just want to like frame this for people because they think it's uh, funny and um, it's a great thing to do by all means, but you basically have to poop into your hand. You get a glove and then you get like these hot dog trays, you know, like if you were going to the stadium and it's a hot dog or French fries, you know, you poop into that every day for three days and then you have to scoop out of it. It's the most humbling experience ever, 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 ever. And I've done it twice now. Um, not only that, but it's you're you kind of feel like you're pooping under pressure, like pooping performance. <laughs> There's like a little bit of inevitable like constipation that occurs because you're just trying to figure out how to aim just so so you get it in the hot dog tray and you got your special gloves on that they send you to clean up the mess. And then and and then afterwards you gotta put it in the FedEx container, put that in the refrigerator and explain oh to your family that that's your poop in the refrigerator <laughs> waiting for the FedEx to come pick it up. And then worse yet. Right next to dinner. <laughs> right, exactly. And because kind of like the gold standard way to test your gut, and, and this is, I think, what a lot of practitioners miss is it's gross to think about, but like parasites, for example, they're going to, they're going to shed over the day and over multiple days. And so if you're just testing on one day, you might have a critter in your gut, for example, or, you know, some type of bacterial marker that doesn't show up on one test, but by doing the test over three days and, and submitting three samples, you get more accurate data. Yet it also means that you got to repeat this damn thing like three days in a row. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Good actionable information, but I agree. Humbling, not humbling, humbling. But anyway, so I did all those tests and um, I, I got them all organized. And it is an organizational process. There's certain things you can't take while you're doing it. There's certain things like staying away from fish for some or staying away from probiotics for another or, you know, um, uh, certain biotin, biotin can mess up certain tests. So there's a bunch of stuff that you have, you have to really read them. And so I felt like I was a second grader reading them. I'm like, Oh, this is a lot of information, but got that going. And then in the meantime, my doctor had recommended, I, I see a functional doctor. I called her up and, um, you know, luckily got in cause these doctors can be hard to get into. And she was glad that I had started all those tests that you recommended. Um, and then she started recommending some more once those tests came in. So like an additional one that I ended up getting 
especially after seeing the toxin report was um, I got a heavy metals test. So I did the provoked heavy metals test, which ended up kind of seeming like maybe a key to the whole thing because my mercury was just like astronomically high. You had the, uh, the mercury results of a, of a true sushi lover. And, and you, you, you dropped a, a term there that some people m- might not be familiar with, uh, provoked test. A, a provocation test for metals typically means that you are consuming something like a EDTA or DMPS or DMSA or what would be called a provocation agent, which allows the body to be able to increase the urinary excretion of certain metals or elements. And sometimes a non-provoked test will not necessarily detect with the greatest accuracy what metals you're high in. And then when you do a provoked test, it'll really show you know, rampant levels of, for example, in your case, mercury. And so that that's why I'm actually a fan of, of that provoked test. And you also did uh, the, the NutriVal analysis, which I absolutely love. It's like, kind of like, you know, looks at micronutrients, at fatty acids, at amino acids, at a lot of the little things that a basic blood panel won't test for. You know, the, the NutriVal, is, it's like a combo blood and urine test. So you got like yeah. 100 25 different biomarkers that that thing's going to look at, you know, antioxidants and vitamins and minerals. It's, it's a, it's a very, um, it, 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 it's a very commonly used test in functional medicine for people who are, who are kind of stepping back and looking at a very holistic approach in terms of blood and biomarkers. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's, um, also one of those tests that detects metals and you kind of had like a double positive, right. And your provocation test for metals, you tested high for mercury and then your NutriVal test also showed you're high for mercury. So there's no doubt that, that there's some, some metal issues going on as well. Yeah. And it's my understanding, uh, cause I was diving into this as much as I could to learn more about it because it just seemed kind of really surprisingly high that the non-provoked part of the test will give you kind of more of a recent body birth, more of a recent read on your, on your levels. And the provoked is a little bit more of a total body burden. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the provoked test will increase renal excretion of certain elements that you, that you wouldn't excrete in a non-provoked test. So it, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a fan of, of getting what would be called a provoked test or, or collated test, just because you, you can see mm-hmm. a little bit more, you can compare it to the non-provoked results, uh, and kind of see what may have been happening historically versus what's in your body now. But I, I think if you had to choose one, I'd get a, I'd get a provoked test or, yeah. or a neutral you know? So I also, my doctor also tracked my blood with uh, the mercury in my blood because, and I had said, I thought um, from all my readings that that wasn't the most accurate. And she said, it's, it's not the best, but it is definitely an ass. It helps us track it. And so like my blood mercury level, I think when it was initially tested was maybe 42 and it, then it went down to 31. And so I'm not sure where it is now, but I mean, the process has been going on. So then I learned a lot about um, detoxification and sweating and poop, pee, sweat, all that and um, saunas. And so, uh, so it's been quite, quite the journey, but I would say the large bulk of it after I got the results back from the longevity test, the Cyrex test with all the, all the, for all the foods, 
was that I had leaky gut like crazy. Like everything is on the list. I mean, it is, it is, it is, it's so much. It's so bad. There was only like one herb I could have. I think it was parsley. And I think that there was two, maybe two different seasonings. I think I could have turmeric and paprika and, and that was about it. And then like n- almost no proteins. The only proteins I could have were something like scallops, cod, um, tilapia and halibut. Not, those are the only things that reacted low. But then of course, once I got the mercury information, I was like, shit, I shouldn't be eating fish. And yeah. um, so anyway, so it was basically like gut healing first for three months and a whole pill protocol to live up to and eliminating all as many of these foods as I could. And then after the three months, I did this stupid thing where I ran a marathon Um, So I ran the Boston Marathon. So during the gut rehab, I was also training for a marathon. Why why not engage in a sport that is that is well known for increasing gut permeability uh, while you're trying to heal a leaky gut? uh, I said yes to that last year. So, you know. I like yep. to live up to my word. So, um, so trained for that and also doing the punishing training in Arizona, which I never realized how much heat played an element of, yes. but it, I mean, hundred degrees in the sunshine at eight o'clock in the morning is, is just dumb. And, um, so anyway, so I did that. And then finally, after the marathon was when she said we could start with chelation, which is, you've kind of said the word, but it's basically using one of those chelators that you would use for the provoked urine test. Um, DMSA is what I'm using and, um, you just use more of it. And so I'm on a five day on nine day off, um, cycle for three months essentially. So, um, and with binders, which are clay and charcoal and all those things so that the, the metals have something to bind to, so I can eliminate them instead of redistributing on them. Which is important. I've covered that with Dr. Dan Pompa on my show, the problem with just, let's say, finding out you're high in metals and um, maybe taking boatloads of cilantro or charcoal and not activating the liver detox pathways, which means you're binding up some stuff, but not that much, or vice versa, taking a bunch of things that would activate or or um, or, or increase, uh, any of, any of the phases, there's kind of like four phases of detoxification in the liver. But then if you don't simultaneously use a binding agent, you get what you just alluded to that redistribution. And a lot of times that redistribution occurs kind of osmotically. And the brain is the section of the body that tends to be the lowest in metals, typically in someone who is metal burdened. And so mm-hmm you wind up with what would be denoted as like mad hatter syndrome. You know, it was the, the people who used to make hats way back in the day, apparently used metal that was high in among other things, mercury and wound up <laughs> with all these crazy symptoms. And, and so there's actually something to being the mad hatter. But the problem is if you're doing a detox protocol, it's not well formulated. You're just kind of doing a DIY type of thing and increasing liver detox pathways without a binding agent. You can get metals redistributed into neural tissue, which which then winds up creating a whole host of other like mental and emotional issues. So yeah, you, you have to, if you test high in metals, do a well-comprised detoxification protocol, either overseen as you're doing with a functional yeah. medical doc who's using chelating agents, and then also the agents that increase the liver detox pathways. 
or the other one that I tend to recommend because I, I think it, it, it's one of the better formulated detoxification protocols out there is um, Dr. Chris Shade in, in Boulder. He has his uh, company Quicksilver Scientific and they do something called their Detox Cube, which is basically like glutathione, uh, arlipoic acid, vitamin C, uh, some, some kind of like an intestinal cleanse formula that has some of those binding agents in it. And it's like a three month protocol, but it just kind of comes to your house in a box and you just wow. basically follow the instructions. And I, I've, I've used that with a lot of people who have asked me about what to do about their metals and done pre and post analysis. And it seems to clear up metals. Like, I mean, just perfectly. So that's, that's kind of yeah. like, it's not quite a DIY solution because typically for that particular cube, you need to go through a practitioner to have it ordered. But like, you know, I, you know, like, like for Quicksilver, for example, we did, we just have a code that we use and, and, you know, I, I get that for the clients who want to do it, who don't have a functional medicine doc, who they're working with, who kind of knows how to do a metal detox. So there's kind of two ways to go about doing it, but the way you don't want to do it is to go to whole foods and buy a bunch of cilantro and activated charcoal and, you know, kind of, kind of do your own thing. So yeah, it can be, it's dangerous for metals. Yeah. And then you also talked about how you were doing the sauna and things like that. And, and, you know, for, for metals, and I realize we're kind of rabbit hole and getting, getting all over the place here, but I'll, I'll throw this in and then maybe we can in a more structured format, go through, go through your labs um, more systematically. But I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of, for people who don't want to arrive at, let's say January 1st, realize their burden with a bunch of metals and toxins, do their big yearly detox and then, you know, wait a year and then do it again, which can be pretty stressful on the body. I'm a fan of life, just including naturally worked into your daily routine, specific protocols that either enhance lymph flow or allow for uh, greater amounts of sweating through your body's largest detoxification organ, your skin, care for the liver, et cetera. So for example, uh, once a week, like every Wednesday, I do a coffee enema, right? Which, which actually does a fantastic job starting to activate a lot of the detox pathways in the liver, amplifies bile production in the gallbladder, kind of cleans out the colon a little bit. So I always do a coffee enema, usually with some butyric acid and some olive oil and some other nourishing elements for the colonic flora in that enema, and then take charcoal afterwards, go in the sauna for about 30 minutes, sweat everything out. And typically in the morning prior to doing the enema, I'll do like 10, 15 minutes of rebounding, like up and down on the trampoline, which also helps with those detox pathways. And so every single week, like seven times a year, I'm getting like a, a weekly kind of like mini cleanse dictating that, you know, when, when the end of the year arrives, I don't have to go out and do any kind of like special fancy detox. And, and the other thing that is helpful for this is the concept of cellular autophagy and giving the gut a break and allowing the body to engage in its own cleanup protocols. And that's where I think some type of fasting regimen comes in handy. Like, you know, when, when you look at a lot of religions, they always have these, these times of the year when you might have a protein restricted time or a time when, when you're calorically restricted. Or if you look at a modern example, like Dr. Walter Longo has published lots of research on his so-called fasting mimicking diet, the FMD diet, where for five days, you're just eating 40% 
ish of the number of calories you would normally consume, thus allowing your body to engage in some amount of cellular autophagy. And you get a lot of benefits from that fast without being super duper calorically or nutritionally restricted. And then there's also kind of like an, an, an Ayurvedic type of cleanse called the Panchakarma cleanse, which involves eating this special type of stew called kitchari for uh, five days in a row, along with some amount of olive oil or ghee, some grapefruit juice to upregulate the CYP enzymes and liver. Um, you've probably no doubt heard about, you know, juice fast and bone broth fast, et cetera. But what I'm getting to is what, what my strategy is, is on a quarterly basis, I'll choose a four to five day time span and just do some element of a, of a cleanup. That's a little bit more intensive. So like in the spring, I might do a kitchery cleanse sometime in the summer. I might do a five day bone broth diet starting off in the fall, a juice fast, and then maybe at some point in the winter doing something like the fasting mimicking diet. So four times a year. And a lot of times, cause I'm in the nutrition industry, I just like to play around with the new fasts or the new kind of cleanup protocols that are out there. So I just use it as an opportunity to do a little bit of immersive journalism, but I think systematically weaving in on kind of like I do on a weekly basis, something like you know, rebounding a sauna, an enema and a binder. And then on a quarterly basis, doing some type of a, some type of a fast, like an intentional caloric adjustment or dietary composition adjustment is a really great way to just kind of like woven into your life systematically throughout the year, ensure that you're not getting a buildup of all these metals and toxins and things that inevitably even if you're living a healthy life, you're kind of exposed to, you know, everything from brake dust to the, you know, plastics on the back of receipts to, you know, the jet fuel you might be breathing when you get on the airplane. Like the fact is we just don't live on a pristine Himalayan mountaintop. So even if you're super healthy and your home environment is dialed in, the fact that we live in an era where there's just so many things we're getting bombarded with dictates that it's kind of a smart strategy to not just like wait and wait and wait until stuff builds up uh, kind of like, kind of like what happened to you and then doing this massive detox that can be, you know, expensive and hard on the body and, and, you know, very nutritionally restricted versus just adjusting your life so that your body's just constantly kind of detoxing throughout the year, if that makes sense. Great, great, great advice in which I will be taking. And I've learned a lot about a lot of these things in the process, learning about what the hell is autophagy, learning about giving your stomach a break and having a certain windows. Like I've practiced much more like 12 hours of, of, you know, from dinner till breakfast time, just to give my stomach a break and learning about, you know, eating every four hours for your stomach, just little tips and tricks, not snacking. I mean, again, another all over the place thing. I took, I used a continuous blood glucose monitor this summer for a couple of months yeah. while I was doing all the, while I was doing the gut protocol, like started it, which was so educational. But anyway, in the process, I learned a lot about a lot of different things that I'll be implementing, but some of those are some really great tips to do. Um, I literally have written down my like, coffee enema. I had someone else tell me to do one too. And, um, Yes. I don't want a video on how to do it. I just pumpkin pie spice latte coffee enema. It is just, just organic, <laughs> free, mycotoxin free, organic coffee. And and like I mentioned, you you can, you know, it, it's so funny because like historically enemas have been a, a, a common practice, especially in a lot of alternative medicine circles and you know, even in a lot of um 
you know, just like uh, cultures and indigenous tribes and, and, um, and people from all around the world have used their butthole as a way to either deliver medications or do something like an enema. And um, it, it's one of those things where it seems like in America, especially we're very, very kind of uh, from almost like a puritanical perspective, very wary about anything that goes near the butthole. But in reality, like, like doing an enema is once you get used to it, it's kind of like brushing your teeth. It's, it's not that difficult to pull off. And if you're doing something like a coffee enema, like I mentioned, you can put, you can like make yourself your, your coffee, let it cool down. Of course, that's important. And <laughs> like, room temperature or lukewarm. And then, like I mentioned, I'll actually put things in there to help to either soothe the colon or, um, or, or feed the colonic flora or line the intestinal wall or, or the, or the colonic wall. So what I mean by that is I'll do the coffee enema, but then typically I'll put some extra virgin olive oil in there for the oleic acids. And I'll put some butyric acid, like a couple of butyric acid capsules in there. Cause your colon loves butyric acid a little bit of probiotic. Is like that berberine? Is butyric acid berberine? Is that the no, same thing? No, no it's like what I use is one called tributyrate, which is, which is a really good stable form of butyric acid. And it just helps you poop like a champion. And then um, what, what you do is you, you just stir that stuff into the coffee, right? And then you just lay down on, on your side on the bathroom floor and you know, get a good book and, and let it all go into your, into your colon, lay there and read for about 20 minutes, get up, take a, take a poop and, you know, then go do your sauna or whatever you're going to do afterwards. How do you know when it's done? Is there a certain amount, like it's 12 right. ounces or it's 16 ounces or it's whatever ounces and you just like let it flow in there and well, lay there? Or how do you know when it's done? Because I've had a colonic a couple of times and yeah. it's like, you know, with a professional, it's like it turn the water valve on, it fills up, it feel you feel a lot of pressure and then they release the valve and they keep doing that over and over again. Right. The, yeah, th this is a lot different than that protocol, which, which I've had done. But obviously, when, when you're making health decisions about things you're going to do on a regular basis, it's ideal not to necessarily have to rely on driving to some fancy practitioner. Totally. Using like thousand dollar machine to clean out your colon, like something you can do at your own or on your own at home. It's going to be a little bit more sustainable and consistent. And so while those fancy colonoscopy or not colonoscopy, a, a colonic machines um, work and they, they pull a lot of stuff out of your body and you feel clean as a whistle afterwards, I feel pretty similar after I do a coffee enema as I do after one of those. And typically it's around 10 to 20 minutes. Like that's the recommended amount of time to actually have the coffee in your, in your colon. Usually you'll, you'll feel some bubbling. Sometimes you'll have kind of like an urge to go, but you'll kind of want to wait if you can for 10 to 20 minutes. And then at that point you just okay. sleep. Stand up, you get it all out. Sometimes uh, it it takes uh, a little bit more time just to make you know on the toilet. You know, get yourself a good squatty potty and you know do do have some, the toilet really close. Do some good breath work and then yeah, and then get it done and uh, and then uh, preferably have have an actual cup of coffee so you can enjoy real coffee. And I I don't know why, but when I do a coffee enema, it makes me want an actual cup of coffee. Like it to smells drink. amazing. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's the smell of coffee in the bathroom makes me want to drink coffee. But anyways, so I do all that. And, uh, and yeah, so it's about 10 to 20 minutes. Well, cool. Well, I think we should go into the labs and, and, you know, this is all definitely part of it, but, you know, let's get your, let's get your expertise on, 
you know, where it's at. You know, I, I think probably what would be most helpful after us talking about our buttholes for so long um, would would be to just kind of go go through the current labs and I'll, I'll point out a few things that'll hopefully be helpful for you and, and helpful for the people listening in. And, and then we can uh, address any, I think you had some other questions you wanted to go through from there. So the, the real, real basic one that you did that I think most people are going to be familiar with, if we just want to start with the, with the easy stuff, so to speak, was your basic blood panel, which is very similar to like the panel that most doctors are going to order for you with your, you know, your, your complete blood blood profile and your, your, your metabolic profile. And, you know, you're testing things like thyroid and lipids and vitamin D. And, you know, typically when most people see a white blood cells on a, on an average, blood test they're going to get from a doctor. As you've already alluded to, your T3 was somewhat low. I think you were like 67 and, and the reference range for T3 is about 80 to 200. So your T3 was a little bit low, TSH slightly elevated, which is very common. You know, thyroid stimulating hormone is typically going to be elevated if T3 is low because your brain's trying to get your thyroid gland to make more thyroid hormone. And usually if T3 is low, you can't just stop there because then you have to ask yourself, well, why is it low? Is it low because I have an autoimmune issue and uh, my, my thyroid or, or, or my body is developing antibodies that are affecting the thyroid gland and thyroid production. And typically for that, you want to make sure that if you are looking at thyroid, your doc is not just testing T3 and TSH, but they're testing the total and free T3, the total and free T4, which would be kind of like the precursor to the active T3, which is going to be like the, the, the metabolically active form of thyroid hormone. You want to look at thyroid antibodies, which would indicate whether or not low T3 is an immune issue or whether it's something else. Uh, and then typically you'd also look at, um, uh, some, some of the thyroid binders, but basically in, in your case, you didn't really have a, a lot of issues that would indicate that there's some significant autoimmune reaction going on, like, like through the roof thyroid antibodies or anything like that. But your T3 was low in combination with somewhat high CRP, an inflammatory marker, and then also all this gut dysbiosis. And then I went and looked at your Dutch panel. And even though your, your Dutch panel, which is the urinary panel for hormones, uh, I believe that what happened was the the cycle phase that you were in when you took it. Um, you you had mentioned something to me about your Dutch test where you you uh, you hadn't uh, you hadn't done it at the right time. Is that correct? Yeah, it says do it on I think day nineteen is when yeah. you're supposed to do it um, right. for a woman that's cycling. Um, and I just my cycle. The reason why I went in in the first place is because my cycle was irregular, was late, late, and then gone, gone, and then started coming back. But there was no real. I didn't really know when when it when I was actually in what day I was actually in. So I just did it. Yeah. And, and so the Dutch test um, among the things that that will measure is cortisol. And a lot of times if T3 is low, you'll see elevated cortisol indicating that excess stress could be responsible for the, the, uh, low thyroid. A lot, a lot of times like under eating and excess stress in many cases are, are directly correlated to like low T3, high TSH, et cetera. Now your cortisol wasn't too problematic on your Dutch test, you had low progesterone and low DHEA. Again, like the cycle phase that you were in wasn't ideal for doing this test, yet that does give us some clues that the body might need a little bit more 
hormonal and adrenal supports. Um, you know, basically, you know, a low, low progesterone is an issue that I see quite a bit in women. And in many cases, you know, people will, will ask if they need to be on like some kind of progesterone cream or bioidentical progesterone support formulas. A, a lot of times I find that with progesterone being low in combination with DHEA being low, which is going to cause fatigue and low mood and low libido in many people, it's simply a function of, uh, especially active fit, you know, health, healthy, at least healthy on the outside people. It's a matter of excessive training and under eating and especially under eating of fats. And in many cases, like eating more and then replacing a lot of the exercise sessions with things like sauna, yoga, walking in the sunshine, easy swimming, et cetera, giving yourself permission to move the body without beating up the body can kind of kind of do a pretty good job in the absence of any type of hormone replacement or progesterone creams. It, it can, it can help to adjust these values. And then the other thing that a lot of times just makes a, a, a huge, um, a, a huge impact on energy levels in a state of low progesterone, low DHEA is just upping the fatty acids and the overall fat and calorie intake a little bit, decreasing the excess training a little bit, and then getting on a little bit of DHEA, like 25 to 50 milligrams of DHEA, which is, you know, you know, like, you know, from life extension formulas has a, has a good DHEA. There, there's a few companies out there that do DHEA, but it's, it's pretty simple to do like a slight adjustment in DHEA. Uh, but regardless of the fact that you weren't in the ideal phase of the cycle for the Dutch test, which by the way, for those of you listening in, it's a urine test that will test not only all of your hormones, but also the hormone metabolites. And that's important because let's say that your cortisol is high. In many cases, people will say, okay, well, my cortisol is elevated. I must have a ton of stress in my life and I'm not getting enough sleep, et cetera, et cetera. But then when you look at that person's lifestyle and training program, it's actually not that bad. And then if you go to the Dutch test, it'll go beyond just testing for cortisol and it'll look at cortisol metabolites, meaning you could see, well, okay, cortisol is high, but it's not because I'm producing too much cortisol. It's because the cortisol isn't getting cleared as quickly as it should be. And that would be a case where you'd see high cortisol and low cortisol metabolites. And a situation like that would be a situation typically in which someone has um, either impaired liver function or impaired thyroid function and it's impacting their ability to be able to clear cortisol. So the Dutch test just gives you a lot more clues. Now in your case, I don't I don't think that excessive cortisol was as much of the issue with the low T3 as it was all of the gut issues that were going on because your cortisol looked pretty good and I I I, I don't really think that uh, like a thyroid autoimmune issue is a problem because the thyroid antibodies weren't elevated, but yet, and this, and this is, this is why it's important to look at the whole picture. When we go and look at your gut panel, you know, you have a little bit of maldigestion, a little bit of gut inflammation, a little bit of a gut metabolic imbalance and with some of the short chain fatty acids and the butyrate. Um, presence of a little bit of bacteria and yeast. And all of that is something to pay attention to and be mildly concerned about, or at least aware of, but your dysbiosis in the gut was through the roof in terms of bacterial imbalances. And like you were a 10 on a scale of one to 10 in terms well, of 
Yeah, that was the second test. I will say that was the second test. The first yeah. test was a seven on dysbiosis. Right. And then some things kind of improved in the second one. So the first one was before the marathon. The second one is after the marathon. And um, the dysbiosis was at, through the roof at a 10. And I gained some new bacteria in there. So it could be could be a result of maybe marathon training or just who knows. Well, it could be a result of marathon training, but it could also be the result of you going about the protocol that you use to address the leaky gut and the the significant ingestments in the type of foods that you were eating. Yeah. And a lot of times when you are doing a gut healing protocol, and, and I don't know if you were doing this, but in many cases, you're doing like a lower intake of fermentable carbohydrates, so-called FODMAPs, you know, like uh, uh, you know, fructose and oligosaccharides, and even, even like a lot of fermented foods, you know, kimchi and sauerkraut mm -hmm. and stuff like that, along with um, you know, wine, kombucha, those type of things that you'd want to avoid if you're showing a high amount of yeast. What, what happens is by addressing leaky gut, in many cases, you address one issue, but you're kind of like starving the gut a little bit too of what the bacteria would need to create a good bacterial profile in the gut. So a lot of times after you do a gut healing protocol, you actually, once you've addressed any amount of leaky gut and kind of healed up the gut lining, you kind of have to like refeed the gut. You have to increase your intake of fermented foods and get on good probiotic support and increase your intake of resistant starches and overall dietary fiber now that your gut is able to handle it, right? And th this would be, an, you know, like, for example, the carnivore diet is very popular. And, and I love that as, you know, an example of a diet that would eliminate a lot of common gut irritants, you know, all these plant defense mechanisms that we would find in everything from, you know, common healthy foods like, like lentils or kale. Well, you're, you're eliminating a lot of those on a carnivore type protocol and it does a good job at eliminating a lot of immune triggers, eliminating a lot of gut irritants and things that might damage the lining of the gut, especially in someone who already has some type of pre-existing leaky gut issue. But at the same time, you're really not getting a lot of bacteria and fermentable carbohydrates for the gut and fiber. And so people feel fantastic on a carnivore protocol if they have gut issues. Yet long-term, what you'll see sometimes is this presence of dysbiosis as the gut kind of gets starved. And that's why you always have to step back and say, okay, well, this is a great diet for me right now to help me to heal up, but it's not going to be the diet that I'm on for life because I don't want to starve my gut of some of those things that it seems to really be, you know, based on these lab results, wanting and craving. And so, so one thing that we'd want to consider doing at this point, now that you've, you've started to, to heal up the leaky gut is to begin to add more probiotics and increase dietary fiber intake and increase intake of fermented foods and even intake of resistant starches, you know, like inulin and green banana and, and heated and cooled starches like rices and potatoes to be able to feed the gut. Um, you know, and, and there, there's a lot of ways to go about that, but um, from a probiotic standpoint, have you, are, are you actually taking a probiotic right now? Yeah. I take digestive enzymes and I take a probiotic every day. You, usually the one that I 
I tend to recommend that I like is called seed. The reason I like that seed one is, is they wrap it in like an algal medium that keeps it really, really resistant to getting like broken down by the stomach acid. And, and they've, they've done some pretty good uh, studies on that one showing that it does a good job reaching the end of the small intestine. And uh, for pre and post testing, I've found that that seems to make a pretty good impact on mm. gut stability. Although with a lot of people, I recommend combining it with a soil-based probiotic because that's one thing that, that I don't think it has enough of in it. And so you, you could get like a soil-based product from a company like, you know, like, um, uh, uh, what's the company ancestral ancestral health, uh, Jordan Rubin's company. I, I forget the name of it, but they, they do a soil-based probiotic. You can combine ancestral supplements. No, they, they're the ancestral supplements. Great. They do all the liver products, mm-hmm. which when we can talk about this, when we get to your genes, cause you've got like some, some MTHFR issues, which I love organ supplementation for that to provide you with some really good bioavailable forms of folate and, and ancestral supplements makes those. And I think they do some of the, some of the better like liver, kidney, heart, spleen, pancreas supplements mm-hmm. out there. But the Jordan Rubin's company, I think, I think it is called ancestral something might be ancestral health anyways, though. So you, you do a couple of those probiotics and then combine them with higher intake of kimchi and sauerkraut and a lot of these fermented foods with, in your case, the only thing that you'd want to be careful with is a high amount of more of the yeast feeding ferments like kombucha, wine, beer, um, anything that has like higher amounts yeah. of the processed sugars. in. that's what you would want to be careful of with your history of, of some oh. of I love wine. I make wine. And, um, I, I asked my winemaker, um, about our wine more just cause I'm not the winemaker. Um, mm-hmm. and I was like, what's this thing about dry farms? What's all this, you know, you talk about, it. there's lots of you that talk about dry farm wine. And I'm like, is it actually that the farm, cause dry farm, dry farming is when you don't irrigate. And there's a certain, you know, th- that can lead to lower sugar yields in the wine. Um, because it's lower, it's just, there's less clusters. It's, leads to some things, but then there's also just dry wine, which means low to no residual sugar. Right. And so my wine is organically farmed. We don't dry farm, but we, we, we do it responsibly. It's not over irrigated because that doesn't make good wine anyway. Yeah. And, um, and there's no residual sugar since we have such a quality clean process, we don't really need sulfites. Yeah. So that's what my wine is like. And so is that okay? That's okay. I, I I can tell you that with uh, with yeast, it is pretty rare for me to see high yeast values and someone to send me like their dietary protocol and they're just like you know swallowing the whole foods Kool Aid specifically the actual whole foods Kool Aid meaning like they're drinking massive amounts of kombucha. I've never been able to drink kombucha. It makes me feel so bloated. I don't. <laughs> I, I can't even remember the last time I had a sip. Yeah, it, it's kind of like the the hippie version of drinking Coke all day. Like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, we have one subset of the population following the standard American diet, you know, drinking Coke and Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew and energy drinks. And then the healthy people are slapping themselves on the back for choosing kombucha instead. And then they've got massive amounts of yeast and gas and bloating and don't know why it's all the, all the, the, the sugar in the, in, in, in the ferments and the kombucha they're drinking. So careful with kombucha, especially with, from a yeast standpoint, but anyways, yeah. So, so for you, you know, at, at this point where you're at, I think that a well-formulated uh, probiotic regimen, increasing fermented foods, increasing resistant starches, um, and increasing overall dietary fiber intake, especially uh, from things that help to soothe the gut, like some of these these fibers, like you know, chia seed slurries and sea moss gel, and um, 
you know, like pureed pumpkin mash, like a lot of pureed mashed boiled steamed vegetables, especially when people have a history of gut issues, tend to be a better way to get the fiber versus like whole grain seeds, nuts, raw salads and kale and, and the things that yeah. wind up long term for a lot of people, especially people with pre-existing gut issues causing more gut issues. And then, you know, you, it, it sounds like you did a pretty good job with the, with the, with tackling the leaky gut aside from running a freaking marathon, <laughs> but I, I do want to give a, a, a head nod to a, a few of the things that I find for, for people who have leaky gut, as far as soothing and, and restoring the, the health of the gut flora and, 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 and really just doing a good job healing up the lining of the gut huge fan of uh, colostrum, which they actually have studies on athletes showing that colostrum can help to heal the leaky gut or can, uh, I should say more specifically, can help to reduce gut permeability in people who are exercising, specifically people who are exercising in the heat. That's how I first discovered the use of colostrum is when I was racing Ironman triathlons, I used to get a bunch of gut issues, but I was racing in like, you know, Hawaii and Thailand and Florida and Mexico and all these places where you're just, you're going hard for 10 hours in the heat and doing a lot of your training under heat acclimation scenarios. You know, like I drag my bike into the sauna and, you know, like do two to three hour riding sessions in the sauna. And so I had rampant gut permeability. I started using colostrum colostrum helped a ton with that. And then, uh, the other ones that I like in addition to colostrum is, uh, a higher intake of bone broth, like a really good, like mm. bone broth that's got like the thick clumpy gelatin in it. Does anyone sell one that's like that? Or do you have to make it yourself? And I love to cook, so it's not a big deal. You know, I've, I have been using kettle and fire, but then I also make my own bone broth at home and I make jello that's basically Great Lakes gelatin, which is really nourishing for the gut. And all I do is I heat up a bunch of coconut water or bone broth. And then once it's heated up, I get out a whisk and I'll stir just a copious amount of the Great Lakes gelatin into that. And then I'll pour that into just like a little Pyrex glass jar and put it into my refrigerator. And at night before I go to bed, I cut myself off a chunk of that jello and eat it. It satiates the appetite. It nourishes the gut while you're asleep. If you need to like a flavoring agent, you can put a little monk fruit or stevia or allulose into it. If you, if you like to make it sweet. Um, I was super happy because Great Lakes just launched like a vanilla flavor of their gelatin, like a naturally mm -hmm. flavored vanilla. So now I can literally just like heat up coconut water, put vanilla flavored gelatin in it. And I got like this nice kind of like sweet vanilla flavored jello. And, you know, when, when my wife and kids are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat aware of calorie intake and just from a longevity standpoint, I'm careful with, you know, the super calorie dense stuff like ice cream. We have goats and my sons like to make goat milk ice cream, which I love, but it's also really, really calorically dense. And so a lot of times when the family's sitting down and, and eating a bunch of, you know, ice cream, I'll have uh, your gelatin. I'll have a chunk of that jello and I don't even want ice cream because it's so satiating. So, so yeah, jello or gelatin, colostrum and bone broth are all really, really good at kind of soothing the lining okay. of the gut. So I'm, I'm a fan of any of those. And the last thing that really helps is um, I have this recipe in my book, Boundless, uh, a guy named Dr. John Duyard, who's an Ayurvedic medicine practitioner based out of Boulder. He has a recipe for this stuff called decoction tea. 
it's some different herbs that you heat up in water and kind of let it, uh, the decoction process involves letting it kind of boil down a little bit, get this nice thick tea. That's got things like marshmallow root in it and licorice root. It tends to be really, really soothing to the gut lining. And you can make that yourself at home. And then the other thing that really helps is there's a doctor named Dr. William Davis and Dr. William Davis. He actually just wrote a brand new book about the gut in which he features all of his recipes, uh, and, and I have one of his recipes in my, in my book also, uh, but he, he has some yogurt recipes that are fantastic. Like these, uh, like coconut yogurt recipes that are specifically designed to nourish the lining of the gut. And so any of Dr. William Davis's yogurt recipes, if you have like a yogurt maker at home or even a food dehydrator that you can make yogurt in, oh my goodness, they're amazing. You, you there's specific probiotics that, you have a list for it. You can just like buy from Amazon and you put the probiotics in your, in your goat milk or whatever milk you're using to make your yogurt and, you know, heat that up and then put it into the yogurt maker and let it sit for about 36 hours in the yogurt maker. And that stuff is amazing for nourishing the gut. I don't have a yogurt maker. I'm very, I love the kitchen. I've got a lot of tools, but I tell you what, I don't have a yogurt maker. Even, even like an oven at a really low temp can work in, in, Got that. in a pinch, but just like a, it's nice to have a food dehydrator anyways. I mean, like I literally have like a huge batch of yogurt going right now mm -hmm. while we're talking at about 105 degrees in the food dehydrator, but I like the food dehydrator because you can do all sorts of things with it. Like you can take kale and, and salt it and make kale chips. Or I actually, I love organ meats. And while I like those ancestral supplements, organ capsules that we talked about, a lot of times I'll just take like liver or heart and to get some of the gamey flavor out of it and tenderize it, you soak it for about 24 hours in kefir or buttermilk or lemon juice. I think the very, very best thing, cause it has a bunch of enzymes in it that help is kefir. And then you just take it out, you rinse it, you thin slice it and then salt it and put any other spices that you want on it and put it in the food dehydrator. And you can literally make yourself like these liver and heart chips that sound gross, but taste really, really good. So food dehydrator. Good. is it like jerky? It's kind of like jerky, but I like to, I, I stop the dehydrator before it gets like super dehydrated. Cause I like, I like kind of like chewy moist jerky. So I don't, I don't let mine get too dry, but yeah, it's kind of sort of like jerky. Yeah. Okay. It's like like organ meat jerky. So anyways, those are a few of the things that I would be thinking about for the gut. The NutraVal test, that, that one's super interesting. You know, I already mentioned what it is, you know, in terms of it, it just testing for a whole bunch of micronutrients that the basic blood test isn't going to test for. And also gives you a really, really good idea of your mitochondrial health because it tests a lot of parameters that directly, excuse me, directly affect your mitochondria. It's a blood and a urine test. Okay. So you're, you're given a, a couple different samples of your fluid because we want to make sure we cover blood, urine, poop, saliva, the whole meal deal. You want to give, give all of your body to these labs. <laughs> so the, uh, the NutraVal test, um, a few things that, that popped up on yours was somewhat elevated levels of oxidative stress, which is very, very common, especially amongst active people. You know, the same reason that your, your, your C-reactive protein, that inflammatory marker in your bloodstream was probably a little bit elevated due to exercise as well, which is why it's, it's actually always important when you go in and get a lab test to jot down to yourself, what kind of exercise session you did the couple of days prior, just, so you know, if there's any values you can ignore, like if, for example, creatinine and CRP are elevated, in many cases, it's not because you've got kidney dysfunction and rampant levels of inflammation due to some hidden disease. It's 
because you like were bench pressing the day before or went on a run the day before. So for sure. I mean, I don't take, I mean, like I, I, I am learning how to take rest days, but in general, I mean, my like not so hard day yesterday included like back squatting and yeah. Yeah. Liver, liver enzymes are another one that tend to be elevated if you've done a workout protocol the day before. So, you know, in in some cases I'll tell people, well, if, if you're seeing like really high creatinine and really high CRP and really high liver enzymes, just make a note to yourself and maybe for the next test, take a couple of easy days, just go for some walks and, you know, do some easy, you know, swimming or sauna session, you know, things like that, some yoga, and then do the test just to double check and make sure that CRP and creatinine and liver enzymes weren't elevated due to exercise, but, you know, may have been elevated due to something else. But either way, um, your, your NutriVal test showed that you could use some support in the antioxidant department. Um, and I don't know if you're, you're doing much as far as antioxidants are concerned, but specifically in your case, the two that, that seemed to be pretty depleted were cysteine and glutathione. And so, you know, you should consider, uh, for example, stepping up your intake of amino acids for cysteine support. And then, um, actually the, the coffee enemies we talked about is fantastic for just oh, really? your, your, your glutathione production, but then I definitely take glutathione. When, when we look at your, um, your, your strategy and results, your genetic results, what, one of your, your genes, your, your NA2 gene, which is N acetyltransferase two, that is something that expresses an enzyme that's going to help out with what are called acetylation reactions in the liver. And you actually have a slow NAT2 gene, which means that glutathione can help out a little bit with that. And then it's also going to help out with the issue we talked about regarding the, um, the, the oxidative stress on the NutriVal. And then you also have slow MAOA toxin clearance pathways, which is another gene responsible for toxin clearance. So you have kind of like a, a double whammy dictating that glutathione would be good for you, but those genetic pathways and the oxidative stress pathways that showed on your NutriVal, those typically also respond really well to a few other things. Um, PQQ and CoQ10 are excellent for managing oxidative stress and overall mitochondrial dysfunction because you flagged kind of high for mitochondrial support as well. You were like a six on a scale of one to 10 on your yeah. neutral. And so PQQ, CoQ10, and glutathione are kind of like, in my opinion, kind of like vitamin D, vitamin K, and magnesium are really good for bone health and vitamin D status. Glutathione, CoQ10, and PQQ are really good for that overall oxidative stress and mitochondrial health part. So if you're already taking glutathione, you could consider either taking PQQ and CoQ10, or uh, there's one supplement, uh, it's made by um, Alms Bio. My, my sons take this because I've done genetic testing with both of them and they have really sluggish glutathione pathways for a lot of their genes. So every morning with breakfast, they do a serving of, the, of this Alms Bio glutathione because they formulate it with PQQ and CoQ10. So you get all three at once. Oh. You just, it, it tastes like an orange creamsicle. It's really good flavor. And it's just like this little syringe and you, you squirt a little bit into your mouth. And that, that's, that's what I really like for kind of this one, two combo of oxidative stress and mitochondrial dysfunction that you're showing on your labs. Cause whenever I'm looking at, at stuff, I think, okay, well, what, what would kill as many birds with one stone as possible? Sure. How few pills can we take? How few? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I take like probably right now, 35 pills a day. Yeah. So, so anytime I can combine multiple things at once, that's, that's, that's better. So, um, 
So yeah, that's, that's one thing I would consider for the oxidative stress, the mitochondrial dysfunction, toxic exposure. We already kind of highlighted the fact that the reason that's so elevated on your neutral is due to the elevated mercury. And you're already kind of on track with that, with the collation that you're doing with your doc. I talked about the Quicksilver cube as another option. And then the coffee anima, the sauna, the rebounding, just like detoxification protocols. And then freaking like, you just gotta be, I, t- I talked to so many people who love sushi and all of them have the elevated metals. I, I, for the most part, just quit sushi because it's so difficult to find well-sourced fish. And so I, most of the fishy they're, they're on the smash diet, you know, list, meaning sardines, mackerel, herrings, anchovy, and salmon, all of which tend to, especially if you source them well, be low in metals. And then I also, to scratch my sushi itch, I get a, a shipment of sashimi grade fish to my house twice a month. And so I can make my, it just arrives. It's in like this compostable packaging. You hmm. can, if you don't know anything about making sushi, you can literally just like cut it up and put it in a nori hand roll. You can make poke bowls out of it. You could cook with it if you want to as well. Um, it's called Seatopia. And they source all their fish from super duper clean waters. It's uh. low. Levels. And then I use for all like the, the canned fish, I use wild planet, which uh, I, I asked them for oh, all really? their, and they're low, you know, for like their sardines or anchovies, everything, which tend to be low in metals anyways, cause they're lower on the, on the Marine chain for fish. You know, they're not like the big sea bass or tuna or, you know, some of these other fish that tend to be higher in metals. So what I do is I do, um, like more of the smash protocol, more of the wild planet for my like canned sardines and anchovies and things like that, that are in the pantry. And then I subscribe to this Cetopia, you know, it's like butcher box for fish kind of the house. And that way, when I want sushi, even though I'm not going out to sushi as much anymore, just because gosh, I mean, the, the bodies are in the streets. I, I see it so much. The elevator yeah. and cooking, it helps. Is that right? Does cooking fish help yeah. eliminate some of the metal or is that not true? It, it can help a little bit if you're discarding, you know, whatever juices that are flowing out of the fish as you're, as you're cooking or broiling or you're steaming or however you're prepping the fish, but really it's, it's only going to make a small dent in the metal values. And if I do, you know, occasionally I'm in Vegas and I have great sushi places in Vegas at the casinos there, whatever. I mean, I'm seeing a, seeing a fight and I want to go out for sushi. I just always toss a bottle of activated charcoal into my bag. And so if I do happen to have eaten fish and I'm not quite sure of the source and I'm concerned about metals, yeah. I'll just before I go to bed, you know, and you want to separate it from any other supplements by about 60 minutes, just so it's not binding any of the other supplements that you're taking. Right. I feel like this could be like a, a, maybe a little bit of a lesson. Like, you know, I have a conscience. I love animals. I care about them. And I spent quite a few years trying to decide what the situation was with animal protein meat in general, including fish. And like, I had a wave of thinking, maybe I should be more vegan. And that was difficult. And I didn't feel as good. I always felt way better on like high fat animal protein. And then I thought, well, okay, the fish, maybe I don't feel quite so bad for the fish. So I stopped eating everything but fish. And I'd eat fish normally. It was like halibut or sea bass or things like that. And I mean, I would eat sushi sometimes, but not a lot. Um, but then that was kind of like the norm for me for a while, quite a while. I'd say probably, I'd say a couple of years, two years, maybe I ate mostly fish. 
Mm -hmm. Um, and then when all this came through, it was like, I just, it was just no more fish. I only eat fish every now and again, when I go out to eat, I don't eat fish at home anymore ever. And when I go out to eat every now and again, if it's a really nice place, I'll get fish, but that's about it. Yeah. Well, related to this, your, your omega-3 fatty acids on the NutraVal, they weren't too bad. They, they weren't ideal in my opinion, especially considering the fact that you have, you, you have low levels of arachidonic acid, uh, which you'll find like egg yolks and bone marrow and, and fatty meats and things like that. And your, your omega-3 count is okay, but it's a little low. So if, if you're not eating much fish, you should consider taking like a little bit of fish oil or algal oil, okay. just sure that you, that you keep your omega-3 count. Uh, you don't, you don't have to take much. It's like, you know, one to two grams of fish oil, you know, with breakfast on days that you don't have fish, for example, would be, I think advisable for you. It's, it's not that bad, but your NutraVal panel is, is showing that maybe a little bit of omega-3 support could be good. What about, what about cod liver oil? Cause isn't that something that has like DHA or DHA? Yeah. Yeah. Cod liver oil is good. In my opinion, cod liver oil tends to be a little bit overpriced and expensive considering that just like a basic fish oil can give you the the EPA and DHA that you're looking for, but cod liver oil isn't bad. And there's some companies that make really like Nordic naturals. I think they even have like a chocolate flavored cod liver oil, which doesn't taste half bad if you like chocolate covered fish. So (laughs) it covers up some of, some of the caudy taste. I think this one I have has lemon and rosemary or something. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, um, arachidonic acid was a little bit low. Um, and then also you showed some need for more support from phosphatidylcholine, which is interesting because if you were to either increase your intake of egg yolks and bone marrow and fatty meats, you would be getting a little bit more of the arachidonic acid and the phosphatidylcholine. And the other way that you could go about doing this would just be to straight up use a phosphatidylcholine supplement. Like that company I talked about, um, Quicksilver Scientific, they do, they do a, a pretty decent phosphatidylcholine that you just, you know, squirt in your mouth, you know, before bed or whatever. And, and, um, the other thing that they do is, is some of their nighttime sleep supplements, like their melatonin and their, their lipo calm. Those, those have a lot of phosphatidylcholine anyways. Again, if you want to kill two birds with one stone, if you want, you know, sleep support from something like that, it would also give you, give you some choline. And so I, I would consider upping your intake of choline, whether via the diet or the supplement. And then the other thing that, uh, was high was your pentadecanoic acid and your tricosinoic acid. Um, and one thing that you should consider doing because that affects, um, it, it basically it'll affect the levels of linoleic acid and it'll affect what's called your Delta six desaturate enzyme activity. Now, I, most people don't care about all those names, so I'll cut straight to the chase. But basically, if you consume some oils that have what's called preformed GLA in them, gamma linoleic acid in them, that'll help to adjust some of those values. So we're talking about like evening primrose oil or borage oil, or um, uh, there's there's one called black seed oil. There, oh, black seed oil. I've yeah. taken that. There's a company called Andreas Seed Oil. <laughs> And they have all these different oils, like their five oil blend, a pumpkin seed oil, a coriander oil, black seed oil. Um, you know, they have a fennel oil, but I actually have a whole pantry that's got like eight different 
oils from them in it. And I'll just like grab a couple of those oils when I'm making my lunchtime salad or making a smoothie. And I just typically get about a tablespoon or two of those oils on a daily basis. And it's really, really great for covering the basis for those fatty acids that you're not getting from like fish oil supplementation. So you're kind of getting the one, two combo of some of these beneficial plant-based oils with gamma linoleic acid and some of your omega sevens and nines, and then you're getting your omega threes from other fish oil or fish consumption. And if you were to pair all of that with choline and then throw in your glutathione, your PQQ and your CoQ10, I think that, that it would be really, really nice for these Nutrival values. The The other thing on the Nutrival test, so we talked about the metals on there. We talked about the fatty acid profile. Um, you showed a little bit of need for more digestive enzyme support, but it sounds like you are already kind of tackling that as far as digestive enzymes goes. Um, the other thing was, the, or the only other thing on the Nutrival that I wanted to bring up was from a mineral standpoint, you had low potassium, low potassium. And so a lot of times, if you have kind of sluggish adrenals anyways, or, or, you know, you're, you're going after energy levels and you're a, you know, you're an active person who's exercising a lot, potassium, um, loss is not uncommon, especially if you pair that with like a sauna practice or something like that. So, um, you may want to consider stepping up the potassium intake just a little bit. Um, there, you, you can also supplement with potassium if you wanted to. Um, uh, there's a guy named Barton Scott, who I interviewed on my podcast. He has, he has a really good bioabsorbable form of potassium. I forget the name of his company. I think it's like upgraded minerals, something like that. But anyways, he, ha he has a pretty good potassium, but I would consider supplementing with just like a little bit of extra potassium just cause that's, that's one of your minerals that that's somewhat low on your Nutribal panel. So something to think about there. Um, okay. So we talked about the Dutch. We talked about the Nutrival. We talked about the gut. We talked about the T3, uh, and the CRP on the basic blood panel. Your cholesterol was a little bit elevated on your basic blood panel, but you didn't really show, you know, like usually if cholesterol is elevated, I'll look at anything that could cause that cholesterol to become problematic, like high blood glucose or rampant levels of inflammation, or uh, one in particular that that I think is the best one to pay attention to is the so-called uh, atherogenic ratio, which is your triglyceride to HDL ratio. And in many cases, if cholesterol is elevated and triglycerides are really high compared to HDL, meaning like your triglyceride to HDL ratio is above four, even though I think anything above two is something to pay attention to then that's where you should look at doing things that would lower triglyceride and increase HDL, like using fish oil, increasing fiber intake, ruthlessly mitigating vegetable oil intake, being careful with processed sugar and starches, et cetera. However, despite your HDL or your LDL being high, you didn't really have any other factors showing that that would be problematic from a cardiovascular risk standpoint. Well, and I also feel like one of the things that I learned about that too, is that my good cholesterol is high too. Both cholesterols are good. When people say like the bad LDL cholesterol and the good HDL cholesterol, it's such painting with a broad, broad brush. Like LDL cholesterol is only bad if there are other factors present that could cause it to become atherosclerotic. Like it's necessary for uh, to be for LDL to be elevated in terms of heart disease risk factor, but it's not sufficient for LDL to be elevated. There have to be other risk factors that are present. So really there's no such thing as good and bad cholesterol. All cholesterol is good. And then the environment in which that cholesterol is elevated is what dictates whether or not it would be problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
the I guess the last the last one the last test uh, the kind of interesting one actually we there there are two other tests your your Cyrex like your food allergy panel and then your strategy panel um, so the the food allergy panel a lot of times you'll you'll get like you'll hear about like an Elisa or an Alcat those are those are two of the most mm -hmm. common blood tests that would be used to identify food intolerances. They look at how your blood responds when you eat a specific food and they measure, you know, like the ELISA measures your IgG antibody reaction to a food and the ALCAP measures your white blood cell reactions. And so the dictation here is that if your immune system reacts to a food, that would signify that you're intolerant to that food. But it's it's actually not that simple. Like there are some studies that show that if you have an elevated IgG response to a food, that indicates tolerance, not intolerance. And in many cases, it's simply because that's a food that you've been regularly eating. Right. Um, white blood cells are going to constantly change their shape and their activity anyways. So if they do that in the presence of food, that doesn't necessarily mean that food is a trigger. And so a lot of times when people get an ELISA or an ALCAT test, they wind up with this laundry list of false positives that aren't really true food allergies. And in some cases, they're just testing for the white blood cells reaction to the raw protein, like the uncooked raw chicken or raw eggs or raw beef and not the cooked protein, which is the form of protein that most people are actually eating. And that, that's why I recommended that you get the Cyrex because the Cyrex tests the white blood cell reaction to both the raw and the cooked foods. And then they use really, really good quality control at their labs, like in terms of the reproducibility and the specificity and the sensitivity of their arrays. You don't wind up typically walking away with a huge laundry list of false positives from a Cyrex test. Well, that makes me really nervous because there was a lot of things on that panel, wasn't there? I've, I've, seen, I've seen a lot worse. You have? <laughs> yeah, but, but you got an array 3X, which is your wheat and gluten reactivity and autoimmunity, meaning it, it directly measures like non-celiac gluten sensitivity, celiac disease, a food <laughs> opioid reactivity. A lot of people don't realize like wheat has a lot of opioids in it. That is one reason that people actually can get like literally like addicted to wheat or, or beer. What? Um, you know, test for intestinal barrier damages, wheat related autoimmunity. Uh, there's a whole book about that, about the, uh, I think it's, it's, it's an older book. I think it's called a uh, grain brain. Brain yeah. brain. Yeah. Of how we can, and I'm not, I'm not like a, like a paleo guy who doesn't eat bread. Like, you know, I, I just. I sourdough. I eat sourdough. Occasionally I'll have regular bread too. Like I took my son out on a date last night and they brought the bread basket out to the table. We had bread, but I always just travel with a bottle of uh, dipeptidopeptidase, which is a gluten digesting enzyme that if you just do happen to want to have some gluten, yeah, you might still get like the glyphosate and the herbicides and the pesticides if you're not yeah, careful yeah. of the source of the wheat, but at least break down the gluten. So you, you showed that you do have some intolerance to some wheat germaglutinins. Uh, you had some elevations of tissue transglutaminase and some gliadin sensitivities that dictate that for you in general, even though it's not going to like totally destroy you, wheat avoidance is a pretty good idea for you. And then you had multiple additional food intolerances, which you are so painfully aware of now, notably a millet, rice, amaranth, quinoa, potato, garbanzo beans, lentils. Pinto beans, 
most of the nightshades, onions, garlic, and eggs. So ignore what I said earlier about eating egg yolks for the choline. I forgot about your, your Cyrex panel. So no eggs, is that a real thing for sure? Cause I've been eating some eggs lately and here's the weird thing like wheat for sure. Like gluten, I know it with eggs. I don't feel any different. I don't get any yeah. reaction. I don't discomfort. I don't, I don't get anything. Here's the deal. This isn't like a for life, avoid these foods thing. Usually yeah. Someone flags for all these Cyrex issues and they have leaky gut. If you go and take care of the leaky gut and spend eight to 12 weeks on like an elimination diet with colostrum and bone broth and, you know, some of the other things that we talked about, low stress, avoiding hard exercise sessions in the heat, um, you can then retest your Cyrex values and see what's really going on now that the leaky gut is taken care of. So once you've kind of cleaned up things for eight to 12 weeks, I just retest the Cyrex and mm -hmm. I'll wager that a lot of these foods you will be able to reintroduce. So like, would black beans be okay? I'm trying to think like if I did want to have like, especially in the evening, cause I have learned that, that like, you know, better to stay away from carbohydrates earlier in the day it can kind of make you a little bit more hungry, but like later in the day and especially at night can help you sleep. Is that accurate? Yeah. You get a little bit more of a serotonin release and a subsequent melatonin uh, production. When so could I have a different bean? Cause obviously potatoes are in there. Rice is in there. The beans you'd want would be garbanzo beans, lentils, and pinto beans. Those are the big ones for you. The other beans okay. you didn't flag high for. So yeah. And then as far as other starches, uh, white potato, you were high on, but like sweet potato, yams, Japanese, purple potato, stuff like that. You could have that as a starch source. You could have like your wine is obviously a little bit of a carbohydrate source. Okay. I didn't see any issues with like little mm -hmm. things like, you know, some people like a little bit of dark chocolate or something like that after a meal. So there are ways that you can get your carbs in, um, okay. without necessarily eating some of these grains that you were, you were high on. The last one I alluded to was this strategy panel and, and you, you showed a few different pathways that are slow that I would pay attention to in terms of making sure that you're not basically burdening those pathways that are slow and also that you're going out of your way to do things that would support those pathways uh, kind of speeding up a little bit. So one was your diamine oxidase pathway, which could make you a little bit sensitive to histamines. Um, and histamine rich foods in many cases can be some of those foods that we were talking about earlier, like, you know, like wine and fermented foods and stuff like that. And the fact that your gut seems to need some support for feeding the bacteria from foods that might also produce histamine dictates that a little bit of like a, a biohacking, better living through science approach might be beneficial here. And you can get a supplement that contains DAO, like diamine oxidase that you could consume if you consume a high histamine diet. Like if you have a whole bunch of sauerkraut uh, with lunch, maybe some wine with dinner, um, what, and even like, uh, you know, like canned fish, right? Like the sardines I talked about would be another example. Well, you could just get a DAO supplement. Um, actually that, that, that company strategy, and they do one called Hista aid. That's pretty good, but something to control histamine release. If you eat a high histamine diet and you could Google high histamine foods to see a, mm -hmm. see a whole list of other high histamine foods, but you in particular should be careful with a whole bunch of high histamine foods and, or get a DAO supplement that you can consume when you have uh, histamine containing foods. So mm -hmm. 
that was the that's that's the DAO pathway. The MAOA pathway was another one that was a little bit sluggish for you, and that's the one that helps with toxin clearance. But what we talked about regarding like glutathione and PQQ and doing this like weekly detox and just paying attention to kind of supporting the body from a detoxification standpoint will help out with that toxin clearing pathway. So we kind of already already covered that one. Uh, PEMT was another pathway that was slow for you. Well. That one uh, responds really well to choline support. So everything we talked about regarding choline or phosphatidylcholine supplementation, you should make sure that you're getting adequate choline on a daily basis. And you'll probably notice a little uptick in your mental clarity and mm -hmm. cognitive performance, just because typically choline acts as a little bit of like a, like a nootropic or a, or a smart drug to a certain extent. I mean, it's technically not a, not a smart drug, but it's kind of like fuel for the brain. So mm -hmm. choline would be another good one. Um, MTHFR, uh, the, that's, that's the, the MTHFR enzyme is going to produce methylfolate, uh, or five MTHF. And you were sluggish in that pathway. Organ consumption, in my opinion, is like the best way to keep this yeah. path supported. And so like we talked about ancestral supplements, they do an organ capsule. Um, if you like to make organ meats, you know, and you like to whatever, you know, I'll do everything from like crock pot a heart all day and make heart tacos at night. You know, I, I, I blend a uh, raw liver after I've soaked it in kefir. And then I pour it into little, little molds and I put it in the freezer and I'll pop a couple of those in my smoothie in the morning. And kind of like, you know, the parents who sneak the vegetables into their kid's spaghetti sauce, you don't even notice it, but I'm getting like, basically almost every day I get really, really high intake of raw liver. And so I, I think that, that like, mm. If, if you were to, to, to eat more liver or just eat more organ supplements in general, it would be really good for the MTHFR pathways. I did, uh, I did buy some liver and I had some ground duck and I chopped up the liver real small and I mixed it in with the ground duck and I made duck meatballs. I love it. I love it. That's, that's exactly the type of thing that that's gonna, that's gonna help. So so yeah, organ meat supplementation. And then the last one uh, I already mentioned, it was your NA2 gene, which is another uh, toxin clearance type of gene. And so any of those things that are going to support the liver are going to be good. But in particular, some of the compounds that have been shown to directly help with the NA2 gene are flavanols and polyphenols. Uh, and so I'm talking about things like curcumin, Mm. and carcetin and garlic. And so turmeric, so is turmeric. Okay. I mean, curcumin is what's in turmeric, right? And I eat that pretty, pretty regularly. Just like have turmeric and garlic as like two of the things that you cook with on a regular basis. And, you know, carcetin, I'm a fan of anyways, cause it's wonderful for the immune system. I, I usually pop a little bit every morning anyways, just as part of my supplementation protocol for immune system support. I started doing that when COVID started just from some of the data I saw on carcetin and COVID and I just kind of kept doing it. So, uh, you, you may want to throw in a little bit of carcetin and then just make yeah. sure you're getting a lot of flavanols and polyphenols, particular curcumin and garlic or turmeric and garlic would be two really good ones for you for the NA2 pathway or the, or for the NAT pathway. So Oh, and there was one other related to the histamine. You actually had two genes that express the enzymes that degrade histamine being slow. Your other pathway was histamine and methyltransferase. That one's sluggish on you too. So kind of a one-two whammy for your histamine pathways. So again, I'd just be really careful from a dietary standpoint with the high intake of histamines. And again, you could Google high histamine foods or low histamine yeah. diet. And then the other interesting thing is like from an environmental standpoint, you know, some of these sluggish detox pathways, if you use like 
air filtration in your home, like really good HIPAA air filters and, you know, low VOC furniture and be really careful. I think you're already doing this with like your personal care products and your household chemicals. Just just be careful from a, from, from a lifestyle or environmental standpoint as well. What's the, what's your best advice to give me based on customization and data? And so you gave me these tests and you're like, do these tests. And so I think we've hit on some stuff, but if you were going to recommend something to me based on this information, you know, and especially being a female, I do think that there's a, an aspect of it because something that I've been playing around with a lot is um, fasting and intermittent fasting windows and the kinds of food I'm having and, you know, everything from, you know, slow carb diet to less carbohydrate to more carbohydrate to it just playing all around with it based on like a lot of data and, uh, being a female, uh, what would you recommend for what my plan should be every day? First of all, I think that for you being, being an active person who likes to exercise, who needs good hormonal support, I would love to be able to support a little bit more the progesterone and DHEA, as well as feed the gut with a good variety of fermented foods while also taking into account the histamine sensitivity and being careful with the yeast, um, avoiding the gluten and some of the other issues that we talked about, et cetera. I think the better dietary protocol for you would be something pretty close to a modified Weston A price protocol. Uh, that, that particular diet involves eating a lot of whole unprocessed foods includes a lot of organ meat and, you know, pasture fed based meats, you know, beef, lamb, game, etc. Um, you know, eggs are on there, but for you, we'll be a, a little bit careful with eggs for now, at least for the next eight to 12 weeks. So that's the one thing I would be kind of careful with, um, that diet has, you know, wild fish and fish, fish eggs and, you know, shellfish from unpolluted waters in it. Um, I don't see any issues on your panel. Um, I'm just going to double check your Cyrex, uh, for anything related to dairy. How do you feel on dairy, by the way? Fine. Um, I, I don't really mind it. I, I think, uh, you know, in my head, a little bit of, um, uh, breakouts, skin breakouts can come maybe if I have some, but I really stay very much away from it. And I, there's so many plant-based, um, cheese alternatives and things like that. Um, but I don't mind dairy. The only thing, other thing I'd ask with eggs, what if it was like quail eggs or duck eggs, do those work? Yeah. You actually flagged for chicken eggs. That's, that's a great, great observation is you, you could do eggs from other sources like ducks or quail, or I don't know, platypus. The Weston A. Price does include recommendations for like raw or fermented dairy, like raw milk and whole yogurt and kefir and cultured butter and full fat raw cheeses. And I think those would be just fine for you. It's got a lot of animal fats on there, like lard and tallow and egg yolks and cream and butter, um, fresh fruits and vegetables, but usually like soaked and sprouted and fermented a lot of lacto fermented vegetables, you know, kimchi and sauerkrauts. 
um, any grains or seeds or nuts on that diet are all soaked or sprouted or sour leaven, you know, to neutralize a lot of the phytic acids and the enzyme inhibitors. Um, it's got a lot of minerals, a lot of clean waters and, and, uh, typically, uh, beer and wines in moderation. Most of the sweeteners are, you know, stevia, raw honey, maple syrup, you know, date sugar, um, maple sugar, things like that. And so I, I would be doing something pretty close to a, gluten-free Weston A. Price diet with the elimination of the foods that flag high on your Cyrex panel um, for now, for the next eight to 12 weeks until you retest the Cyrex. And as support on a diet like that, I would be using uh, not only digestive enzymes and probiotics, which we talked about, but glutathione, CoQ10, and PQQ for the mitochondrial support. Um, I would be including the turmeric, the quercetin, and the garlic that we talked about. Um, and then uh, what else? With, oh, the, uh, the organ meat consumption or organ capsule consumption would be another supplement that you'd want to throw in. You're already doing uh, this whole supplementation protocol that your functional doc gave you. So you've got things like magnesium and vitamin D3 you know, some of the other things we didn't talk about in the last little bit, but that your doctor recommended to you, you know, even she even got you on like NAD, things like that. Like basically the whole supplementation protocol, your doc already has you on, you could stay on, but then just throw in a few of the things that we talked about that aren't redundant with what you're already on from your doc. And then uh, combine that with the Weston A. Price protocol, but a gluten-free version of that. For the fasting and things like that, I'm a big fan of, for premenopausal women, not doing intermittent fasts that are longer than 12 hours, just because that kind of down-regulates the levels of what's called kispeptin, which is a precursor for your FH and LSH levels and impacts fertility and hormone status. So I wouldn't be doing long intermittent fasts, but what I would be doing is the, that kind of like approach of a quarterly five-day cleanup that we talked about. So you're still getting the cellular autophagy that you'd technically be missing out on by not having your fast be longer than 12 hours. And I have many clients who, especially female clients who I'm telling not to fast for longer than 10 to 12 hours, who will do just one or two times a month, a 24-hour dinner time to dinner time fast, which is infrequent enough to not cause a lot of problems from an endocrine function standpoint. And so that that's that's what kind of like the fasting or, or the food restriction part of things would look like. Does it count if there's like a mimic, uh, like a mimic mimicking fasting by doing like a keto coffee kind of thing? Is that something that would still be considered like breaking the fast? Like at twelve hours, I have you know uh, butter in my coffee, MCT, whatever, something like that. If it has calories, it counts as food. If you are doing, let's say an, an overnight intermittent fast, and then breaking that fast, let's say 12 hours in with a, let's like use a, like a keto coffee, you know, coffee with butter and stuff in it. Yeah. Technically that is going to give your endocrine system a signal that you're not in starvation mode and that calories are present. Some kind of like slightly orthorexic-ish women will take this to mean that they can just fast until lunchtime as long as they put a minuscule teaspoon of MCT oil in their morning coffee. And that's not what I'm saying. 
What mm-hmm. I'm saying is that you can, you don't have to eat a huge breakfast, but get some calories in your system within that 12 hour window. If you can, you know, I wouldn't be doing a, a lot of intermittent fasting without giving your body something past those 12 hours. Another good strategy is like, and this is what I like for people who just want to crush a morning workout without eating a huge breakfast would just be use essential amino acids and mix those with ketones and like ketones mixed with essential amino acids is really great for like a, a low calorie scenario, but a scenario in which you still want to support like a hard exercise session and have your body have some, some, uh, nutrients to rely upon for energy. And then I, I would save as you have been doing most of your carbohydrates for the evening, just to keep your body in kind of like a fatty acid metabolizing status most of the day then you have all your carbs in the evening spark the serotonin the melatonin production and then basically be able to sleep well after that as far as exercise goes when i sit down and i work on an exercise protocol for somebody i'm looking at you know how many days you have available how many how many hours what are previous injuries are you trying to lose fat gain muscle etc cetera, etc cetera. but i i can tell you and this is similar to what i what i kind of outline in the boundless book is you know, for, for most people, and this is very similar to what I do for like a stay healthy for life type of exercise protocol, you want to include, uh, some type of strength session, some type of mitochondrial triggering session, something that would trigger VO2 max, something that triggers lactate tolerance, something for mobility, something for balance and something for long-term endurance. And so what that would look like, for example, would be three times a week, a full body, heavy strength training session with anywhere from three to five sets of somewhere in the range of four to 10 repetitions of heavy full body weights. No messing around with the body parts, split programs, you know, chest day and shoulder day and calf abs day and bicep spleen, kidney, heart, liver, pancreas day, whatever, just, just like full body exercise session three times a week for the mitral, for the mitochondrial component one session where you're doing really, really hard 20 to 30 second efforts followed by long recovery periods. And that could be thrown in before or after any of those strength training sessions or on a different day for the VO two max piece, something where you're pushing yourself for a longer period of time than 20 to 30 seconds. And for VO two max, preferably two to four minutes where you're doing, let's say like a classic VO two training protocol would be like five rounds of five hard minutes on the airdyne, each separated by five minutes of active recovery. And that would be something you could do once a week as well. For the lactate tolerance, in addition to the strength, the mitochondria and the VO2, something like a Tabata set where you're training your body to tolerate high levels of lactic acid by doing four minutes of 20 seconds hard, 10 seconds easy. And that would be like two to three times a week. And again, that could come before or after one of those strength training sessions or on a different day of the week. For the fat burning piece, I recommend one time per week, like a longer somewhat fasted or exercise session in which you're you're not eating a ton before the exercise session, but you're burning a lot of fats. This would be like waking up, you know, let's say you wake up, you've been fasting and it's 5 a.m. and you do like a two hour hike, then come back and have your first meal of the day. But that you don't want to overdo that like an overtrained Ironman triathlete would. That's just like once a week you're doing like a longer, lower cardio aerobic exercise session without a a lot of calories on board. So you're training your fat burning capacity, mobility and balance, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of foam rolling every morning and something like a massage, you know, once every week or two, 
And then for the balance component, I mean, I, I just weave that into my workouts where I'll do stuff standing on one leg, you know, brush my teeth standing on one leg or, you know, my breaks in between my calls in my office, I'll do a few balance exercises. But basically, if, if you check the boxes of strength, mitochondria, and mitochondria, again, is short bursts of energy followed by long recovery periods, VO2 max, which are those longer kind of surges of exercise followed by longer recovery periods, Lactate tolerance, which is just like build up a shit ton of lactic acid, then back off with something like a Tabata set, uh, that longer fat burning session once a week, mobility and balance thrown in every day. And, and, you know, I, I kind of flesh this out in, in really good detail. And, and I think it's the longevity chapter in boundless where I talk about the perfect exercise program to kind of like stay fit for life. That works for a lot of people. That's generally kind of like the overview of what it would look like. And then in addition to that include you know, being outside barefoot, getting lots of sunshine, doing a sauna session a few times a week, preferably with some kind of intense cold afterwards. And then, um, just low level movement throughout the day, you know, walking a lot, taking breaks, you know, during your, during your work day to crank out some push-ups or kettlebell swings or whatever. And I mean, what I've just described to you is pretty close to what I do, especially since I hung up the competitive exercise hat. And I feel like I'm as fit and even more healthy than I was, you know, when I was doing Ironman triathlon and Spartan races and all this crazy stuff, but it's just those three key strength training sessions a week, low level physical activity throughout the day, hitting mitochondria, lactic acid, and VO2 max on a regular basis, a little bit of mobility and balance, sauna, cold, and uh, sunshine and, and grounding. And that's basically kind of like a, an overview of what like a really, really decent movement protocol for, for a lot of people is going to look like. I have juve red light behind you. Um, I have, you know, a little sauna. I don't have the big, big one. I have just like a pop-up one, but it gets like 135. I don't have a cold plunge. My pool is pretty cold right now, or my shower is cold, I suppose, which is definitely not nearly as cold as a cold plunge. Is there a specific order of frequency for those? Red light panels, if you have them, would be early in the morning or in the evening before, uh, like before dinner to simulate sunrise and sunset your body's really, really receptive of those red light frequencies at those two times of day in terms of circadian rhythmicity. First, the sauna and the cold, I really like those again, either in the morning, you know, so many mornings of the week, I'll wake up and my morning exercise session, if you want to call it that is like 30 minutes in the sauna, then two to five minutes of cold. And then I'll save any hard, you know, typically I'll do like a 30 to 45 minute exercise session later in the day. But that's like in the afternoon when grip strength peaks and testosterone peaks and reaction time peaks and strength peaks, and you're just more favorably suited to doing the hard workout later on in the day. And in the morning, like the sauna plus the cold or an easy walk in the sunshine barefoot or something along those lines. I heard you say one time a week, do like a longer sort of couple hour hike, maybe something that's not super crazy, but gets you into fat burning. What about, so is that, are you saying I should eat first every day, but like I should eat before I work out or the other days and does walking is walking considered, um, working out. Like a lot of times I'll take the dogs for a walk and then I'll come back and work, eat. The main takeaway for you is that, if you have gone longer than 12 hours without eating, whether or not you're exercising, you should eat. 
if you are up at 6 a.m., you finish dinner at 8 p.m., it's been 10 hours, you want to go work out, fine, go go do it. You don't need to eat anything before. But if it's like, you know, 10 a.m. and all you've had is like your coffee with a little bit of butter in it and, you know, you're going to go out and let's say the morning time is when you decide to do your VO2 max and your strength training session, I wouldn't be messing around too much with like the harder fasted workouts. So just try to, as a general rule, not go longer than 12 hours without eating and try to, as a general rule, not do hard fasted morning workouts, sauna, cold, walking, et cetera, I would not classify for you as something that you're going to need to like go out of your way to feed yourself beforehand. Unless again, it's a scenario where it's been 12 plus hours, in which case I do like, you know, 10, 20 grams of essential amino acids and a shot of ketones or just something. It's like a small trigger so that your body's not going in super depleted. We covered a lot. That was dense. And that that's like all what I was really hoping for. So thank you. Yeah, a lot of times when someone, you know, they, they get this gold standard list of lab tests. Sometimes y'all I'll spend like three or four phone calls with people just going through all this stuff and, you know, and then, you know, sit down and write out a nutrition plan or, or a workout plan for them. And, and we just, we just did it all in one podcast. So yay us. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.